0: Today's sponsor is Loot Crate. For less than 20 bucks a month, Loot Crate gives the geek in you a special treat every single month. You get a box delivered to your home of six to eight items of gamer and pop culture licensed gear, apparel, collectibles, and unique one of a kind items and all kinds of fun stuff. This month, we're cowering in fear at the return of the villains. Thanks for joining us as we celebrate our darker side with epic items from Marvel, an exclusive DC figure, a unique wearable we've never put in a crate before, it's a huge crate, and more. It's good to be bad. You have until the 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe and receive that month's crate. And when the cutoff happens, that's it. It's over. So go to lootcrate.com slash Nate and enter code Nate to save three bucks on your new subscription today. Loot Crate. Books. Yeah! 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 yeah. yeah. Hey, it's Nate Cordry. I'm the host of Reading Aloud. You're listening to it this very moment. Thanks so much for joining us. Boy, do I have a fascinating show today. Holy moly, Red Foley. That's a phrase my father uses on a regular basis. Holy moly, Red Foley. I usually don't say Red Foley when I'm like excited by something I usually just say holy moly but when I'm really jazzed and my exuberance is you know at peak levels I say holy moly red foley and this episode is red foley worthy because boy do we have an unbelievable interview uh this is the very first not safe for work episode of reading aloud it took us 20 something episodes to get there um I say it's not safe. I mean, who's listening to this loudly on their computer speakers at work? If you are, bless you. And turn it up, man! Um, we have a fascinating interview with Sovereign Sire, who works in the adult film industry. Um, she also has a degree in literature. We talk about erotica and books and her experiences in uh, in adult films. And it is an amazing conversation. So, to make... Extra room for that interview, I've removed Act One, which is usually a fun joke-based reading live from the UCB Theater. I'm going to put one of those on hold for the following week and spend more time with Sovereign because it's such a great talk. And then we close out the episode. We take a complete right-left turn and read a great short story that George Saunders wrote from his collection, 10th of December. He's one of my favorite short story writers, and uh, this is my favorite story of this collection, which I think is his best collection, but um, George Saunders fans will fight me on that. But uh, it's so great. It's called Al Roosten, and it's really, really funny and sad and cool. Um, So we'll get to that in the second half of the show. But before we get to interviews and readings, um, the book club is happening right now, and you have plenty of time to become involved in it. This here, yeah, those are the pages of The Invaders, which is a novel by Carolina Waklawiak. Waklawiak? Waklawiak? Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna go with that. Um, it is so much fun. Let me read you the inside of the, uh, of the first page. A storm is threatening Little Neck Cove. Cheryl has never felt comfortable amidst the perfectly manicured lawns and lobster-patterned corduroys of Little Neck Cove, Connecticut. Women have an expiration date here, and she knows hers is coming soon. After too many lost invitations to social events and exhausting battles with her wayward husband, she's tired of pretending that there's any joy at the country club. When Cheryl's stepson, Teddy, returns home after being kicked out of Dartmouth, the fishers that have been appearing in her marriage and in her community threaten to expand into chasms. As summer begins, Cheryl's neighbors are lashing out against the local fishermen who invade the wealthy enclave with their beat-up trucks, urinating on their streets and in their bushes. When Little Neck Cove begins, begins closing in on itself, the town's white picket fence has become a cage, trapping Cheryl and Teddy in an escalating cycle of violence. So if you're into violence and uh, ridiculous East Coast wealthy communities, I think you're gonna date this book. <clears throat> it's called The Invaders, and it's the choice for the next book club, which we record in three, what's the date? In three weeks. So uh, that episode will air on the 21st of August. We record it on the 18th. So read the book and then share your thoughts with us on The Invaders. Send it to reading aloud Podcast at gmail.com. Reading aloud podcast at gmail.com. Get the book, read it, and then talk to us about it. We'll share your thoughts on the air. We have a great panel for that book club. I'm really excited to do that one. Um, what else do I have to say? Oh, yeah, no live show in August. I'm going out of town. I had a show planned for the 9th with lots of great readers. Had to pull the plug, unfortunately, but that's just going to make the September show all the more full and rewarding. That's September 13th. September 13th, Sunday, uh, 7.30 at the UCB Theater. You can buy tickets online at the UCB Theater website. Uh, It's at the Franklin Theater here in Hollywood. What else? Am I missing anything, Sam? I think you're up to date. We're up to date, folks. So let's get a talking. Sovereign Sire sat in a chair across from me. This is how I got introduced to Sovereign. We had the live book club at Skylight Books uh, a couple weeks ago. And she came, and she's a fan of the show. And we chatted a bit, um, messaged back and forth. And she is uh, writing a novel. And she has this background in sociology and literature. And is like a huge book fan and then also works in the adult film industry. And I thought, what a ridiculous dichotomy. How are those two things work together? That's a fascinating conversation. Let's bring her in here and chat about all those things. So that's exactly what we did. So now you get to listen to us chat about all those different kinds of things. Here's Sovereign Sire.
1: I flew to New York because I fell in love. I was, I was, um, I had, I had left my graduate program and had decided I was gonna just like write a novel, or I didn't even think I was gonna write a novel. I think I was just kind of like, I just knew I didn't wanna be a teacher. Mm-hmm. Like, I was sitting in a poetry class, and it was, I went, so I went to Fresno State, which has like that poetry program, is, has birthed the last two poet laureates of the United States, Phil Levine and Juan Felipe Pereira. They wow. designed the program I'm in. Like, I took classes from Phil Levine during the CalArts program. Um, I was like mentor. I was sort of like pulled into that program very young. Like Mm -hmm. so, I was sixteen when I started college, and I was at City College. And as soon as I got over to Fresno State, I took a poetry class, and it was like immediately they're like, "Oh, let's get you, let's get you in this path towards graduate school here at this program." Wow. So, I mean, I was very good at poetry. You know what I mean? It's like I was like I was very good at poetry, but like anything that you're kind of naturally good at, you're just kind of like. It's not a big deal to you. You're sort of just like, okay, I'm going to do this. But I'd never really thought about, like, how I was going to make a living doing it or yeah. whatever. And then they, they got me in the TA program, and uh, which took a while because they thought I was too immature. The people that were running that program said she's not mature how enough old you? to – I was 20, 19, 20. Mm-hmm. And they were like, she's she's not ready to – because, like, my students were the same age yeah, as me. Yeah, so right. they were like – and also I just had a reputation for being a little bit like a wild child. Mm-hmm. So surprise, surprise, like – like, none of them are surprised at the kind uh-huh. that turn my life has taken. Right. They're like, that makes sense.
0: That, yeah, that adds that, up.
1: That fits for her. That's a good, that's a good look for her. Do you <laughs> mind? Ma- <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but so um, it was like, and then I started, the minute I started TAing, I like hated it. And I don't know why it took me that long to realize like, oh, this is how, this is how you survive when you're an artist. Is like, this is your day job and i hated it
0: are you still writing poetry like on a, or is it not something that uh, then inspires you anymore um
1: it's not something that inspires me anymore i uh i don't know it's like for me as an as a writer i think i think just as a person i tend to kind of get obsessed with something get very skilled at it do like a thing and then i'm kind of i'm kind of done blown. but i've always written so when i i left school i I I wandered for a bit, kind of trying to figure out what I was gonna do, but then it kind of came to me one day that I wanted to write a novel. Mm-hmm. And like I hadn't really studied that. I would studied creative nonfiction and poetry. Mm-hmm. But um I just kind of woke up and I was like, I'm gonna write, I'm gonna write a novel. Like mm. that's what I'm gonna do. I think I was reading like Michel Foucault, this book, Discipline and Punish. And uh there was like a footnote to a footnote about like the last guy to ever be publicly executed. And I decided I wanted to write, like, a novel about his life. Yeah. Whatever, because the crime was very fascinating. Hmm. Um, And so that was – and I was off. And so, like, once I was kind of off doing that, I was – I needed to make money.
0: That wasn't a big deal. The first time, you weren't – it was something that you weren't kind of anxious
1: about. Uh, The performance or the nude? No, just, like,
0: just nude modeling. When you started, like, nude um, modeling.
1: <clears throat> I think – I mean, a little bit, but –
0: That would freak me the fuck out.
1: I think I just – I think I was so disillusioned with the system by what, the time. What that system, it,
0: What do you mean? What system? What system?
1: Society, just just mainstream society. Because I had been such an overachieving sort of youngster, and because I grew up in poverty, and I was kind of kind of pounded into my head that the only way to escape that poverty was through an education, and so I like dedicated myself to that. And I was like, I knew I had to go to college. I knew I had to get a degree. So it's like graduated at 16, like, you know, and jumped into college and was like going to just want as fast as I can. Like, I didn't even care if I was learning or not because mm-hmm. no one had said it was important to learn. What they'd said was like, what was important that was that you had the piece of paper. Right. And so that was kind of my whole focus. And like, yeah, I, f- I stumbled onto things that I was good at. Um, but I had been a double major in sociology and English literature and there had been a traumatic event with a professor, a sociology professor, that basically kept me from being able to kind of pursue getting the double major. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was like the first thing that happened where I felt I was basically sexually harassed by a professor, and like and it became this huge deal. He ended up being removed, and but the thing was, he had been sort of teaching all of my classes, and it was it was just so traumatic that he was. It was so traumatic; it went beyond like basic harassment, but it was such a traumatic situation. Yeah. I mean I feel we are talking about it publicly just because of for legal issues. But there was there was an issue and I was the one made to suffer essentially. So he was eventually removed and everything, but it was so traumatic what happened to me that I no longer felt comfortable even being in the sociology building, let alone mm. taking coursework with people that knew what had happened. Like I you know it was just kind of like so that was the first thing that happened where I, I felt like but I was told that if you did really well and never fucked up and were a good student and, you know, yeah. like all of these things. I was a virgin at the time. Like all of these things like like that nothing bad was supposed to happen to you. You were supposed to be rewarded. And it was like – so that was like the first thing where I was like, but I don't understand. Like right. I was I was a good girl. Like why was I targeted by, a, you know, a predatory person? Um, and then the fact that it had sort of undermined my educational goals um, – and then to like then going into the graduate program for the creative writing program and kind of just realizing that it was kind of all a scam. I was in a I was in a critical theory class. And um, it just kind of occurred to me as we we're sitting there like breaking down theory, like, oh, all we're doing is we're kind of we're we're being trained to indoctrinate students to think that you know, this certain set of ideals that they need to come here and sacrifice a certain amount of their youth to college. And really it's just about keeping them out of the job market and they're going to come out and there's not going to even really be these jobs available. Like it was the first, you know, when you start to realize it's kind of like a false bill of goods, Mm -hmm. like it's like, you're kind of, if you get an education, like life's going to be easy, but you never think about how that's going to be practically possible. Like how can there practically be like that many jobs available and I think it's just like, you know, as you grow up and you you suddenly realize like, oh, it's not that easy, you know, and you can do everything right and things still don't work out. And so I kind of come out of my, my early youth just kind of with a little bit of a chip on my shoulder, kind of going like, I did everything right. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like things actually didn't really work out. And it was a lot of it was kind of bullshit. Um, so there was a certain part of me that was very like. I don't care. Fuck this. Yeah, like, I don't, yeah. I don't care about I'm pleasing. I'm not going to follow
0: these rules that I, yeah, exactly. Well, because
1: what I came to understand is that, like, no matter, like, who cares what society thinks? Because at the end of the day, like, they're not going to take care of you. Like, that's still incumbent upon you to take care of yourself. Um, and I just kind of wanted to. You know, I'd spent my whole life being so cerebral that some part of me wanted to be validated as a sexual person. And so I, you know, I applied to these, the site God's Girls and Suicide Girls and I got accepted to both. And I ended up going with God's Girls because it was much more like sort of artsy. Um, And I was excited at the prospect of being seen that way. And there was a photographer, one of their staff photographers that lived in New York and he saw my pictures, my, um, the ones I'd sent in to sort of get on the site and then he had Followed me on Twitter and he saw – I guess he was just very charmed by my jokes and, and my presence on Twitter. And he emailed me, you know, that he wanted to be willing to shoot me and he was going to – he wanted to, like, pay for my ticket to New York. Because they had sort of photographers, like, kind of all over. Yeah, So, yeah. like, I sh- ideally I should have just gone to the Los Angeles photographer. Right. Um, but he wanted to pay because he felt like he was in love. And we had this correspondence, you know, through email and – just were in love with each other and so I flew out there kind of to be photographed and to fall in love really and I didn't come home for three years like it just happened so fast it was like it's it's been a very blessed journey in a weird way like I had made him when we were falling in love I had made him like this uh artistic um like erotic sort of masturbation video but I wasn't even touching myself it was all like implied Uh it was very artsy Mm -hmm. and um I had put it on like a tube site because I didn't know how to like send a file like that large like through email, right? But I had made it completely anonymous, thinking like no one's ever gonna. If you go on those tube sites, I mean, it's just like millions and millions of video clips. So right. like you know, it was like I sent the link to him. It was like no one's, you know, no one will ever find this. Yeah, and um, I'd been with him like I think like six months later. We were in we were living in Florida, and uh, and a friend from high school. Emailed me and he said, uh, "Go look on the front page of Fleshbot. You're famous, dude." Oh! And, and I was like, "What?" Shit! <laughs> and I went and I I looked on the front. Fleshbot's like a huge kind of. It's like a Gawker yeah. style blog. Same thing for, happened to Sam, actually. Yeah. Yep.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm sorry to interrupt, because I just had to throw on that joke there. So you get a, f- a phone call or an right, email?
1: Yeah, and um, and I go look, and it's and the headline reads, and here's the thing, like, and this has been my whole journey in porn. The headline reads, um. Art or porn, we can't decide. And it was this write-up was like, I don't know what this is. I found this on a tube site, but I'm like, it was like absolutely hypnotized because I can't figure out if it's art or porn, but I can't stop watching it. And it's so weird and kind of beautiful. And they didn't have my name or anything, but it was this this weird thing where I don't know. And like you know, you think you'd be horrified or something. And what I realized was that I wasn't. Wow. I was like, "Fuck yeah, it's beautiful." And I want my name on that shit, so <laughs> I wrote them and I said, "I said, hey, that's me, dudes." And so then the next day, they they had me on the front page again, and it was this big write up about a sovereign sire, like the face, you know, because that was like this nickname I'd gotten sort of shooting around New York because like I was mainly shot kind of for like my face, mm-hmm. and um. And they did this thing about, like, this this model is, like, really interesting, and her boyfriend, JM Darling, they take these photos that are really beautiful, but are they art or porn? And it kind of, it sort of got this little swirl of attention. And that that was the first time that we realized that maybe we were on to something, you know, bigger. I was excited by it. I was scared because I thought Josh probably wouldn't approve, but I felt like we needed to, like, do something. Like, I just felt like we were not making a lot of money. We were making a lot of beautiful art, but we were making no money.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I was already naked on the internet. And uh, it just seemed like, you know, you either shit or get off the pot. Like, yeah. I, like are we, are we doing this or not? Like, that was kind of my feeling was like, okay, I'm na- we're naked on the internet. We're like, is this a career or is it not? Because if it's not a career, then like we need to pack up our bags, move down to Florida and like, set up shop doing headshots and be very serious about being civilians yeah or like this is like this this opportunity isn't going to be here forever like this there's like a moment of you know like when you're hot you're hot you know kind of thing and so I called him I was visiting my dad at the time in California and I called him and I was like "Uh, I'm going to do this thing and uh, and he was like "Uh, I don't know and then he called me back an hour later and he said okay, like, let's do it. So uh, that was kind of how I got in. And she wrote a script around me and, you know, offered me a lot of money. And
0: <laughs> what, was that, what was it like when you'd finished the scene, that you'd, you'd done the work and you came back, like the first time you saw your boyfriend after that, was he anxious? Was he like...
1: He was there uh, at the shoot.
0: Oh, wow. In
1: order to make him comfortable, uh, Nika Whoa. brought him on to shoot all the sex stills. And to shoot all the pretty girls and the box cover art and everything for he was included in the in yeah the, in the creation yeah of it. and he Is it that was a, like it, for me that was just like part of the deal yeah like, I just needed him uh, emotionally to be there for me yeah but like afterwards I remember just feeling really uh, I was really upset after I shot my first scene I was like because I loved it and I knew that it was gonna change everything. And so I was, I was like kind of traumatized because it's like I, I came out and I knew, I knew that like, I, I knew that our relationship was going to end. I knew that I was going to eventually do boy girl. I knew, I knew that I was going to do this thing that was going to forever sever every bond with polite society. You know? Do you it remember like, the
0: moment when you were like, when it, when it clicked? Was it after, like you just, it was over and you just sort of started ruminating on it and then it came to you or did it come to you on, like in the moment with this other woman? In the
1: moment, it was like I, the scene was starting and like my heart was racing and I was like sweating and I was like, man, like why am I so nervous? And I started having sex with the girl, Dylan Ryan. And... Like, even during the scene, like, I almost started crying because it was so, like, I was so emotionally, oh like, I was so emotionally amped up that it was, like, like, tension here. Like, it was this thing where it's, like, but, like, it felt so good and so natural. And then it's, like, the scene ended, and we we're, like, sitting there on the bed, and I looked up, and I saw my boyfriend, and it was this moment of knowing that, like, everything in my life was now going to change because I was going to do this thing that Holy and it was shit. like I knew that relationship was going to end it it took about a year but it like it ended within the year and about a year later um I knew that relationship was going to end I knew I was going to end up like doing boy girl doing like that I was going to do porn like yeah. that I was going to be in this world and like all all bonds with polite society were just like going to be wow severed Holy you know shit. and it's like so I went home and I was like traumatized not from the scene itself or no, anything, but, you're but negotiating just negotiating
0: a thousand things popping yeah. into your brain, and you have to try to reason with all of them at well, the same time. It's just
1: like realizing that you're suddenly different. You yeah, know? Like, it's yeah. like being an X Men and realizing, like, oh, I'm a mutant. Right, like, I have this thing that, like,
0: <laughs> you know. Well, that's the quote from the from the podcast, right there. <laughs> you realize, yeah, you're well. you're part of the X Men. <laughs> Holy shit. Well, it's the thing where
1: it's like, I kind of, you know, a lot of porn people, I understand the impulse to like humanize. They're like, we're just normal people. And I'm like, no, we're not. I don't think we're damaged. And I don't think that normal's a good thing to aspire to, but we are definitely not normal.
0: If you're standing at a lectern in a high school auditorium and it's full of, if there's 400 high school girls sitting in this auditorium Mm -hmm. and they're all negotiating who they are. Right, basically, and trying to figure out their sexuality. What would you say? What would you say to them?
1: Um, don't do anything on camera until you're at least twenty-four years old. Obviously. No, I would. I would say. I would say. You know, <laughs> I would say that uh, everything that you're feeling is normal. There's absolutely not a single original feeling that out there. like like there's it it doesn't exist so someone someone out there feels the same way is going through the same thing and and science says that your personality is not even done forming until you're 24 years old it's like your your neural net doesn't like solidify and like that's who you are until you're 24 years old so everything that happens until you're 24 is all like that's all learning and growing and like you're not even who you are yet yeah um I don't know. I mean, the only advice I can ever give anyone is like get free. That's it. Like get free. Figure out what's holding you down and get free from it. Well that's said. that's the only advice.
0: <laughs> yeah, let's talk about um, some sexy books because um, <laughs> I, sorry. I no. What are you talking about? Don't be sorry. Don't ever be sorry. Um, I have. Uh, I mean, please. There's. I have four hundred questions about the ins and outs, uh, no pun intended, about uh, the adult industry. But um, it is a podcast about books and stuff, so let's, we can talk about that as well. I I, mean, I we can
1: talk about sexy books.
0: Yeah. Um, uh, I took this class. I mentioned this on the podcast before, but I took this class called um, um, The Literature of Sexuality, and mm-hmm. it was books that I had never Uh, read before, in books that I wouldn't seek out. That whole genre, I have a stigma to. I don't find, I I think it's, um, I don't know. I was just never drawn to it. I was like, uh, I'm not going to be moved by by a book. And I find it like, I don't know. That's not a part of my brain that I want. I feel like that part of my brain is turned on by other things. And Mm -hmm. picking up a book wouldn't be one of them. And I just had all this judgment about the entire genre. Because I saw like, to me, it was like Harlequin. It was like romance novels. Yeah. That, in my brain, that's what erotica was. I was like, oh, fuck off. Are you fucking kidding? And then through this course, I all of a sudden realized that this has an unbelievably dense history, oh, yeah. and it's been written about for hundreds of years. And I started reading these books, and I have a list of them in front of me that I want to okay. share with my, uh, my listeners, that that I fucking loved, and I know you have some books that you love as well, and there's a book in front of you that (sighs) we're going to talk about as well. Um, But some of them that that stuck with me from this course, um, Venus and Furs – Of course, which is amazing, which is um, Sasha Mazik wrote it. Mazik is where the term masochism comes from. Um, It's about this guy who's sort of obsessed with this woman who's tall and strong and she wears these furs and he's obsessed with her and and being sort of degraded by her. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it was like written in the 1860s or 70s. Yeah, because it was sort of
1: like Psychopathia Sexualis. Like use that right because they were the ones that came up with the sadomasochism.
0: Yeah, that first book, and it was it was uh, a quote unquote perversion. Then, yes, um, which of course times have changed. The a, a similar book in a different way that was written almost a hundred years later that I love is is sort of one of the most famous ones. Uh, Story of O. Um, have you read that?
1: No, but I'm very familiar with like yeah. the um, holy the cow. narrative of it's it. It's so uh.
0: fucking good. It is so good, and it was written under a pseudonym because the woman um, didn't it. People always assume that it was written by a man.
1: Well, I know she wrote it as, like, a challenge, basically. Yes. Someone in our office was like, woman can't write erotica. Yes. This is in 1954. <laughs> yeah. 40 yeah.
0: years later, in the 90s, she was, like, 87. She's like, yeah, actually, that was me. Right. And she died two years later, which was really sad. But Story of O is incredible. Um, a Marriage Below Zero, which is an um, Alan Dale novel.
1: That i got to check out. I it's really I great.
0: That. It's this woman who is um, – it's super British. She is um, – married to this guy who is who's obviously gay um, and has this friend and she's just in this like this this terrible chilled marriage and it's about her putting it together I think this is written in like the teens or something um, and her trying to figure out what is wrong 18, with her husband
1: uh, 1889 oh
0: shit Not yeah. oh, that late um, and that one's wonderful that's A- Alan Dale I
1: love having my laptop. I'm like
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's laptop, honey. Yeah. And then my favorite um, from this class is Giovanni's Room, which is James Baldwin, and James Baldwin's amazing. Um, this is actually a book that I bought. I had a, I had to get like a we, – we had a guest on the show many months ago who has a first edition rare bookstore in West Hollywood called Mystery Pure Books. It's like oh. right behind where like the Viper Room is.
1: Do they have a first edition copy of a Homer's uh, Iliad or the Odyssey or whatever? I,
0: I, I doubt they have that. <laughs> Did you it's see probably,
1: that <laughs> – and um, that, that Jennifer Lopez movie, um, which is an erotic thriller. The Cell? Uh, no, no, no. Um, very recently, it was like. The oh, The
0: Handsome Neighbor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. It's there called The Handsome h- Neighbor. <laughs> no,
1: it's The Boy Next Door. Yeah,
0: great. Uh, an
1: erotic movie, The Boy Next Door. Yeah. But there's a scene where he That's brings amazing. her a first edition copy, I think, of Homer's. Uh, of Iliad. the Bible. <laughs> and it was this thing where it's like, I was I was like live tweeting. I went to go see it with my mom. I did this thing where like I'll go to my mom, I'll go with my mom to like really shitty movies and then like a live tweet. That's fun. Like while that's I'm sweet. watching a movie. Yeah. And um and that was one of the things where I'm like, and we have a taint lift off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was, like, was it
0: like carved in stone? <laughs> that's so that's really bizarre. Yeah.
1: But anyway, so um,
0: But he, uh this I had to get a copy of this book because it's so good. And James Baldwin's is is uh, one of my favorites, but it's about this guy, this American who is uh, trying to figure out what to do with his marriage and, and he's living in Paris and his wife goes to Spain and he's by himself and he starts like, he's he has these sort of like dandy friends and this is like France in the 20s which is like such a cool sort of romantic yeah. time. And he starts going to these gay bars and like develops this relationship with this guy Giovanni and falls in love with this guy and then, and but then falls out of love with him and he's just negotiating his sexuality. He's like, am I just really into like partying and have a good time or am I gay? Because I love this woman, but I also, and it's about him just sort of figuring that out. Right. And and it starts, spoiler alert, um, the entire book is is a recollection one night, the night before this guy Giovanni is executed. Um, he gets caught up in a murder and lets like this robbery and he and so it's about this guy's, sort of pondering like, oh man, like he sort of spurned him in the end. And because this guy Giovanni's heart was so broken, he ended up like turning to a life of crime. And he, and this guy is sort of blaming himself, but James Baldwin is just so fucking awesome and accessible. And that book is just great. So listeners, um, Giovanni's room is sort of a must, a must read in in my opinion. <laughs> um, desc- tell me about this really heavy, thick book that's um, in uh, front of me on this table.
1: I, this is Spencer's The Fairy Queen.
0: I don't know what that is. is. Edmund is that?
1: Spencer. <laughs> um, Edmund Spencer was sort of a contemporary of Shakespeare, and he wrote this epic poem called The Fairy Queen, mm. which it's been a while since. It's uh, That's epic. It's, yes, it is very long, and uh, it kind of. Uh, they're basic it's kind of like a morality thing, like sort of each of the each of the cantos sort of is exploring a different avenue of the virtue, a different virtue, you know, like friendship, loyalty, uh purity, you know, mm. like sort of and some characters are sort of recurrent through it, like sort of um, but uh there's like w- like for me, one of uh like there, It's like there's – one, there's like a lot of like really erotic – like I think that we – the reason it resonates with me is I think that we tend to think of erotica as something maybe like Marquis de Sade invented or retif or – because that's kind of the – for a lot of people, their first exposure to erotica is either Marquis de Sade or Nabokov's Lolita or yeah. – you know what I mean? Like yeah. these are kind of people's like um, – and – what i you know what really struck me about you know the fairy queen which is sort of written in the late 1500s early 1600s is um like how sexual it is you know what i mean like a lot of shakespeare's hmm. like it's in, it's intensely sexual
0: yeah um a lot and of double entendres. Yeah, and, yeah
1: but um there was for me there's i'm like going to struggle to find, i should i didn't have time to find it before it right. came in um but one of my favorite uh, erotic sort of stories is I'll just paraphrase it so there's um, Amaret and Busserain so there's like this sort of the lesson of the this particular canto is like friendship but sort of starts with uh, Amaret is about to be married to I believe it's Scudamore um, and At the wedding, everyone's, like, drunk and happy and partying, and her friends kind of abandon her. And in comes Bucerain, and Bucerain's the vile enchanter. And so Bucerain kind of comes in this big retinue, you know, and sort of charms all the guests. And while everyone's very charmed by his sort of grotesque procession that kind of comes through, Mm -hmm. um, he abducts Amaret, you know, and, like, aways her to his castle.
0: Against her will.
1: Yes, uh, he rapes her in the old-fashioned sense. You Whoa. know, he sort of he kidnaps her, right? He abducts her into his his lair. And so the moral of the story is like one: the loyalty of friendship. Like she was abandoned by her friends, and like in that moment where she was left alone because everyone was reveling, she's but taken she was, away. It was her wedding? Yes. Where's her husband? Drunk with his friends. That fucking dickhead. Right. So and he's like total loser. So the whole like he's also a feminist author because so there's a female knight, Britomart, and so Scudamore now has to go save his his woman from the violin Chantor yeah and he's totally demoralized because you know there's this huge fire that kind of comes up on the drawbridge every time he tries to go through and he and it's like really this like he's afraid he, he lacks the bravery to really go out there and do yeah, what he's yeah. got to do right and Britamart kind of stumbles upon him and is like you know what's going on and and he's like oh my my beloved is trapped in this lair and she's a female knight and she's like all right you hold tight homie I'm gonna go take care of this <laughs> So she just charges through, you know, and she gets into the, she gets into the palace and she's sort of like hiding. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of like symbolism, you know, she's like these tapestries that sort of depict a scene. And there's, and she becomes privy to this like sort of march that kind of comes through the castle. And it's sort of like various, uh, various people like representing different sort of sins and, and, and uh, Mm -hmm. whatever. And at the end, out comes Amaret. Like holding her heart in a case, you know, she's leading the thing, and it's like full of like, uh, you know, it's like spikes, you know, it's like she's yeah, with yeah, the yeah. crucified heart, right? Yeah. And she's sort of like, and so she watches this like this like this sad person. I mean, obviously, it's very like metaphysical kind of magical sure. b- book. Um, and so you know, so clearly she's you know this girl's in distress, and so then she is able to kind of go into. The chamber, the bedchamber where all the the darkness is happening. And um, very symbolically, uh, Amorette has been strapped to a pillar, (laughs) which is very phallic, you Uh know, but she's sort of like, she's been like with these bands, these gold bands have strapped her to a pillar, which is sort of like this metaphor for marriage. Like she's been with bands, like Mm -hmm. wedding bands, strapped to Mm -hmm. a phallus, basically, Mm -hmm. and... Uh, the vile enchantor Bucerain, is trying to get her to submit to his advances by sort of like reading her these spells and things like that, and she's just basically being tortured, like trying to remain virtuous. Wow. We. You know, and uh, of course, Britomart Ma- sort of saves the day. You know, saves her and carries her out of the castle. And in this very kind of interesting nudge, nudge, wink, wink. You in know, she's like, she's like, she's um, like. I'm 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 marri- I know you saved me, but I'm married, which is kind of this thing because back in the day it was this expected thing where if a knight saved you, then you owed him, you know, right. a little. And and then Britomart's like, it's cool, man. I'm a I'm a girl, and so you got to worry.
0: And this is just one story in this mm-hmm. entire. Yeah, What is it because co- it's
1: like like it's like a moral. You know, each thing is like a moral tale, and so but like what I loved about it coming to it, you know, 400, 500 years later is that you see these kind of this very, I don't even, you know, you can never know like how much of that's intentional or unconscious, but you see these, like, I remember reading it and in the reading it, I was incredibly aroused by the depiction of her torture.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, Like, and so to me, like for, I guess for a lot of, a lot of us, it's like we kind of, I don't think it was written to be erotica but there was something incredibly erotic in the scenario of like sort of the virtuous girl being tortured by the powerful man. You don't think it was the writer's intention to, to turn on the reader? I think it might have been a like a nudge, nudge, wink, wink. You know, this kind of like, hmm. like this is like there's this part of us that this is we want to see innocence defiled. Yeah. There's another. Um, there's another. It's been a w it's been a while since I now I have to go back and read it. There's another passage where there's the beast of lust is out, you know, roaming the forest and there's these girls that are sort of like trapped in this cave that are his, you know, his conquests. Yeah. Um so there's a lot of allusions to rape and things like that. And I think there is this kind of this idea that at the base parts of our nature, um this is something that it's I think for me, what was erotic about it was just the taboo of it, you know, but also for me, uh, as a female, like the, the eroticism of, um, and this is stay with me here, but here's yeah. what I think the appeal of 50 shades of gray is uh-huh. people are saying, like, women want to be tortured. They want to be raped. They want to be beaten up. I think that what's really going on is that women feel like really oppressed by the culture that tells them this culture of purity and i think that women read that book not from the point of view of the girl i think they're reading it from the point of view of the man and what the girl represents what amaret represents what mm. anastasia represents is this impossible ideal and i think that we get off on see- i for me i get off on seeing that just torn apart yeah like right. i hate that girl you yeah. know that and like because that girl represents like everything that we're asked to be wow um, and and I think that on a subconscious level, that's the real appeal of Fifty Shades of, of Grey. Is like we want to see that girl torn apart on some visceral level. Like we yeah. want to see because it's it just represents like every terrible oppressive thing that right. that we're kind of raised with. Well, you know. Yeah. And so like I like that's why I think it's it's truly appealing. Yeah, you know. Um,
0: that makes a lot of sense. But like
1: for me, I think that's why when I first came across that. The, the story of Amaret and Bucerain, there was something about it that was just incredibly erotic to me and, like, satisfying. And what I realized was because I was looking at it from, like, the male point of view, like, it was when I realized, like, I was adopting the male gaze because I, I saw Amaret as this kind of, like, it's, like, a so painful place to be. Like, liberate her, liberate her. Like, right. like, for me as a reader, like, I want her to give in. I'm like, no, no, just give in. It's going to be amazing. Like... <laughs> Like, that's the thing. It's like, no, no, it's going to be like great. Right. Like You're going to have orgasms. It's going to be awesome. You're going to realize everything is like bullshit. It's like, you know, it, that's for me when I see like sort of these weird narratives that involve sort of like the trope of the virgin. I'm like, no, 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 it's really not a big deal. And where yeah. can
0: uh where can listeners find your your blog and stuff online? Uh, they can blog? go
1: to ilovesov.com, which is definitely not safe for work so they should not they should not It's there's actually no porn on there but there are naked photos they're, Yeah, like they're very artsy but they're probably not appropriate for work.
0: There's butts and boobies <laughs> in it.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um so there's it's a uh, it's run by Richard Avery who's a really big deal photographer but uh he's so there's a lot of photo sets by him up there of me and then there's my blog and also I my podcast. I love is the. I love Sov.com. And then like the... my podcast posts there. Or um, if they go to julielandradio.com, my pod, I have a podcast there called Observations, which is where I interview comedians and writers about their process. Yeah. Like, so those are the places you can find.
0: Sovereign Sire has been my guest today. We've talked <laughs> oh, yeah, <about> we
1: didn't... <laughs> all kinds of things.
0: And uh, <laughs> thanks so much for coming in and chatting with me. This was really fun. Oh, cool. Thank you. Fascinating shit. Yeah. Thanks for coming.
1: <laughs> All right. Thanks.
0: Would you classify yourself as a geek, gamer, or pop culture nerd? Well, Loot Crate is the subscription box for you. For less than 20 bucks a month, you get six to eight items of gamer and pop culture licensed gear, apparel collectibles, and really unique one-of-a-kind items and all kinds of other stuff. Make sure to head to lootcrate.com slash Nate and enter code Nate to save three bucks on any new subscription. Every month, there's a different theme and you're guaranteed 40 bucks or more worth of items all curated around that theme. They're all inspired by classic movie and video game releases as well as pulling from pop culture franchises. There are previous crates that have included items from Star Wars, Marvel, The Walking Dead, Legend of Zelda, and many more. This month, we're cowering in fear at the return of the villains. Whether they're terrifying or tragic, something about bad guys and gals is just plain fun. Probably the snazzy outfits, army of henchmen, and totally relatable treat yourself to some sweet loot. attitude. Thanks for joining us as we celebrate our darker side with epic items from Marvel, an exclusive DC figure, a unique wearable we've never put in a crate before, and lots more. It's good to be bad. Basically, Loot Crate is like a friend who knows what you love and surprises you with an awesome present every month. And did we mention they ship to over 13 different countries too? Yeah, you have until the 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific time to subscribe and receive that month's crate. And when the cutoff happens, that's it. It's over. So go to lootcrate.com Nate and enter code Nate to save three bucks on your new subscription today. Today's episode is brought to you by Plowshare Solos, a reading subscription that delivers long-form stories and essays right to your e-reader. How convenient is that? Longer than a typical short story, but shorter than a novel, Plowshare Solos are the perfect length to enjoy while drinking your morning coffee, on your commute, or relaxing at work. Buy a Plowshares solo subscription now to make picking out your next read easy. Every month, you'll get a new story or essay delivered automatically to your Kindle, to your Nook, your smartphone, whatever, just 10 bucks. So go to pshares.org slash allowed and buy a year's worth of reading now. Now, here's the question. How do you know these stories are going to be worth your time? Plowshares is a world renowned literary journal that has been publishing award winning literature since 1971. Work first published in Plowshares is selected continuously for annual prize anthologies such as the Best American Poetry, the Best American Short Stories, O. Henry Awards, the Pushcart Prize, Best of the Small Presses. It's legit, so you can trust them. These stories are coming from one of the most prominent publishers out there, so you can trust. That they're going to be great. So subscribe today. This is an awesome service, and get a year's worth of stories for ten bucks a year. A year. That's less than a dollar a month. So visit pshares.org/slash/aloud today. Nine great stories for ten bucks a year. Do it. We're uh, we're at Act Two of Reading Aloud, where. I get to read a story that I'm really excited about reading. I found this story. God, when did this come out? year, two years ago? Um, I was in New York, and I was reading it in a hotel, and I just thought, oh, my God, this has to be read aloud somewhere. This is before this podcast even existed. So this has been on my radar for a long time, and George Saunders is one of my favorite short story writers. If you don't know any of his stuff, um... You really need to check him out. He has so many fans. The the back page of this book, Jennifer Egan writes a, um, a blurb. Dave Eggers, Zadie Smith, Jonathan Jonathan Franzen, uh, Thomas Pynchon. Like people love this guy. He's just so good and funny and subversive, and also like emotionally, he has a lot of depth to his writing. But it's really funny and bizarre. Um, he had a couple other collections that I've read. Uh, what are they called? Uh, Past- Pastoralia? Pastoralia. And then I think that his first one was was called Sil- Civil War Land in Bad Decline. Both of these collections are great. Um, he's a MacArthur um, Genius Grant Fellow. I think he teaches at Syracuse. Uh, but this one is called 10th of December. Came out about a year and a half, two years ago. And this story is my favorite story of this collection. It's called Al Rustin, and we all know a guy like this. So I'm going to read this now for you. And then, uh yeah, then you'll listen to it. Okay, here's me. Al Roosten stood waiting behind the paper screen. Was he nervous? Well, he was a little nervous, although probably a lot less nervous than most people would be. Most people would probably be pissing themselves by now. Was he pissing himself? Not yet, although... Wow, he could understand how someone might actually. Let's fire it up! shouted the MC, a cheerleaderish blonde, too old for braids, whose braids were flipping around as, for some reason, she pretended to jog. Are we fighting drugs here today or what? Yes, we are. Do us business people approve of drugs for our kids? No way we don't. We're very much against that. Do we use drugs ourselves? Kids, those of you who are here, believe me when I say we don't. And never did because as someone who does feng shui for a living, there's no way I could do my feng shui if I was whacked out on crack because my business is about discerning energy fields. And if you're cracked up, or on pot, or even if you've had too much coffee, the energy field gets all wonky. Believe me, I know. I used to smoke. It was a lunchtime auction of local celebrities. A local celebrity being any sucker dopey enough to answer yes when the Chamber of Commerce asked. So that's why we're here, raising money for Laugh Kids Off Crack and their anti-drug clowns. The blonde shouted, such as Mr. Bugout, who, in his classroom work with a balloon, makes this thing that starts out as a crack pipe and ends up as a coffin, which I think is so true. Larry Donfrey of Larry Donfrey Realty stood nearby in a swimsuit. Donfrey was a good guy. Good, but flawed. Not that bright. Always tan. Was Donfrey attractive? Cute? Would the bidders consider Donfrey cuter than him, Al Roosten? Oh, how should he know? Did he like guys? <laughs> Was he some kind of expert judge on the cuteness of guys? No, he didn't like guys and never had. There had been that period in junior high, yes, when he had been somewhat worried that he might perhaps like guys and had constantly lost in wrestling because instead of concentrating on his holds, he was always mentally assessing whether his thing was hurting inside his cup because he was popping a mild pre-bone or because the tip was sticking out of an air hole. And once he was almost sure he popped a mild pre-bone when he found his face pressed against Tom Reed's hard abs, which smelled of coconut. But after practice, obsessing about this in the woods, he realized that he sometimes popped a similar mild prebone when the cat sat on his groin in a beam of sun. Which proved he didn't have sexual feelings for Tom Reed, since he knew for sure he didn't have sexual feelings for the cat, since he'd never even heard that described as being possible. And from that day on, whenever he found himself wondering whether he liked guys, He always remembered walking exultantly in the woods after the liberating realization that he was no more attracted to guys than to cats, just happily kicking the tops off mushrooms in a spirit of tremendous relief. A sort of music started up, consisting of a series of loud, thick bumps punctuated by a smattering of feminine groans and something that sounded like a squeaky door. And Larry Donfrey headed down the runway to sudden cheers and whoops. What the heck? thought Rooston. Whoops? Cheers? Would he get cheers? Whoops? He doubted it. Who whooped cheered for the round bald guy in the gondolier costume? If he were a woman, he'd cheer whoop for Donfrey, the guy with the tight ass and rip brown arms. The blonde cued Rooston by pointing at him while walking in place. Oh, God. Oh, God. Rooston stepped warily out from behind the paper screen. No one whooped. He started down the runway. No cheering. The room made the sound a room makes when attempting not to laugh. He tried to smile sexily, but his mouth was too dry. Probably his yellow teeth were showing in the place where his gums dipped down. Frozen in the harsh spotlight, he looked so crazy and old and forlorn and yet residually arrogant that an intense discomfort settled on the room. A discomfort that, in a non-charity situation, might have led to shouted insults or thrown objects, but in this case, drew a kind of pity whoop from near the salad bar. Roostin brightened and sent a relieved half-wave in the direction of the whoop, and the awkwardness of this gesture, the way it inadvertently revealed how terrified he was, endeared him to the crowd that seconds before had been ready to mock him, and somebody else pity-whooped, and Roostin smiled a, a big loopy grin which caused a wave of mercy cheers. Roostin was deaf to the charity in this, What a super level of whoops and cheers. He should do a flex. He would. He did. This caused an increase in the level of whoops and cheers, which, to his ear, were now at least equal in volume to Donfrey's whoops, cheers. Plus, Donfrey had been basically naked, which meant that, technically, he'd beaten Donfrey since Donfrey had need to get naked just to manage a tie with him, Al Roosten. <laughs> Poor Donfrey, running around in his skivvies to no avail. The blonde threw a butterfly net over Roosten's head, and he joined Donfrey in the cardboard jail. Now that he had thrashed Donfrey, he felt a surge of affection for him. Ah, good old Donfrey. He and Donfrey were the twin pillars of the local business community. He didn't know Donfrey well, just admired him from afar. Just like Donfrey admired him from afar. Once the whole Donfrey clan had filed into Rustin's shop bygone days. Donfrey's wife had been beautiful, nice legs, slim back, long hair. You looked at her and couldn't look away. Donfrey's kids had also seemed great, two elf-like androgens, politely debating something, possibly the history of the Supreme Court. Each celeb had his own barred window in the cardboard jail. Donfrey now stepped away from his and toward Rustin's. How gracious. What a prince. They'd have a little chat. The crowd would, would jealously wonder what the twin pillars were chatting about in private, but sorry, no. This was between pillars. Rabble need not apply. Donfrey was saying something, but the music was blaring and roosten was partly deaf. roosten leaned in. I said, don't worry about it, Ed, Donfrey was shouting. You did fine, really, no biggie. Give it a week, nobody will ever remember it. What? What the hell? What was Donfrey saying, that he'd done badly? Had embarrassed himself? in front of the whole town? No way! He kicked butt. Was Donfrey on some other planet? On drugs? On drugs? At an anti-drug event? Had Donfrey just called him Ed? Donfrey could kiss his ass. That fake. That snob. He'd forgotten that. He'd forgotten that Donfrey was a snobby fake. That time the Donfries came into bygone days, they'd immediately turned and walked out as if they'd found Roosten's vintage collectibles, too dusty and, and ill-selected for the Donfrey house, a literal mansion on a hill. And Donfrey's wife wasn't beautiful, Roosten suddenly honestly admitted. She was pale, a pale, haughty waif. As far as Donfrey's kids, <laughs> if those kids belonged to him, he'd scruff them up a bit, try and de them. Were they girls or boys? He honestly couldn't tell. He didn't have kids himself. Had never married. He had the boys, however. The boys were his nephews. The boys were not elfin. Au contraire. <laughs> the boys were whatever was the opposite of elfin. Trollish? Clodhoppers? No. The boys were great. The boys were all boy. <laughs> and how? Possibly too much so. Why his sister, Mag, insisted on taking them to budgie cuts when budgie cuts made them look like three hulking versions of the same odd Germanic roundhead their bangs cut straight across, he did not know. Every night was a three-way grunting wrestling fest in the basement, the boys calling one another scuzz knuckles or ingestrin until one of them bonked his round head into something metal, and they all helped the hurt one upstairs, tears running down their wrestling-engorged cheeks like three suddenly repentant Nazis. Not Nazis. Jeez. Uh, Germans. Energetic pre-war Germanic lads. Healthy young Beethovens. Although, as far as Beethoven, he doubted Beethoven had ever pried a prayer book rack off the pew with his bare hands on a dare from another Beethoven, while a third Beethoven proudly displayed on a hymnal four tightly rolled snot towers. He just... It was the divorce. The divorce had made the boys wild. It was sad about Mag. In high school, Al had been the popular wrestler... And Mag had been the stout girl in Christ life with a big crush on Christ. They'd lived on their parents' farm, but somehow only Mag had turned out farmish. Junior year, she started dating Ken Glenn, equal agrarian, with plate-sized ears. There had been jokes at the time about Mag and Ken being married in overalls. There had been jokes about Mag and Ken being married in a church full of barnyard animals. If there was ever a marriage you'd expect to last this one was it. Two homely Christian farmers. But no, Ken had left Mag for another farmer's. Mag was not homely. She was simple. She had a kind of simple, earthy. She was handsome, a handsome woman. She, everything was where it should be. She carried herself well. Except when bellowing at the boys. Then her face became a red contorted mask. You saw her frustration at being the only divorced woman in her extremely strict church. Her embarrassment at having to move in with her brother. Her worry that if he lost the shop, as it now appeared almost certain he would, she'd have to quit school and get a third job. Last night he found her at the kitchen table after her shift at Costco fast asleep across her community college nursing text. A nurse at 45. That was a laugh. He found that laughable. Although he didn't find it laughable, he found it... He found it admirable. A snob like Donfrey would take one look at Mag in her baggy nurse's outfit and hustle his spoiled elves back to the stupendous Donfrey mansion, which had recently been featured in the lifestyle section of the... Mansion, schmansion, did Gandhi's house have the largest outdoor trampoline in the tri state area? Did Jesus have a two acre remote controlled car track with mountains to scale and a little village that lit up at night? Not in his Bible. Huh. The cardboard jail was now filled with celebs. How had that happened? It apparently missed the runway walks of Max of Max's Auto, Ed Burden of Steak and Roll, and the freakishly tall twin hippie brothers who ran Coffee Minded. The blonde was standing silently now, head down, as if waiting for her experience based profundity to overflow into the show stopping heartfelt speech that would establish her once and for all as the most pain wracked person in the place. Folks, we've arrived. At our most important aspect, she said softly, which is our auction, which is to be silent. Without you folks, you know what? Laugh Kids Off Crack is just some guys with strong anti-drug feelings wearing weird clothes in their own homes. Write down your bid. Someone will come around. Later, if you are the one who won, you'll be taken to lunch by your celebrity who you bid for. Was it over? It appeared to be over. Could he sneak out? He could if he bent low. He bent low and booked it as the blonde droned on. In the changing area, he found Donfrey's clothes slopped over a chair, expensive pleated pants, nice silk shirt. On the floor were Donfrey's keys and wallet. Just like Donfrey to junk up a perfectly nice changing area, Ugh, why be mad at Donfrey? Donfrey hadn't done anything to him. He just made a comment trying to be nice, trying to be charitable to someone beneath him. Roosten took a step forward and gave the wallet a kick. Wow, did it ever slide. Right under a stack of risers, like a hockey puck. There were the keys, alone now, underscoring the absence of the wallet. Yikes. He could say he accidentally kicked the wallet under there, which was sort of true. He hadn't thought about it, really. He just felt like kicking it, and then he had. He was impulsive like that. That was one of the good things about him. It was how he'd bought the shop. Failing shop. He gave the keys a kick. What the hell? Why'd he done that? They slid even better than the wallet. Now wallet and keys were far under the risers. Gosh. "'Too bad. Too bad he'd accidentally kicked those things under there.' Donfrey burst into the changing area, talking loudly on his cell in a know-it-all voice. "'She was fine,' Donfrey was bellowing. Nervous but psyched. Being brave. Stiff upper lip. Kid was solid gold. Always did her share. Carried the laundry down on her day. Dragged the trash to the street. Hadn't slept all week. Too excited.' what she was looking forward to most, running with her class in gym. Imagine, all your life, you're limping around with a bent-in foot. Then they finally figure out a way to fix it. It was scary, yes, Jesus, the brace literally broke and reformed the foot. Poor thing had been waiting so long. They had to haul ass pronto, pick her up, shoot her over to the place. They were running late. The auction thing had gone on and on. He probably should have skipped it, but it was such a, a terrific cause. Rustin finished dressing quickly and left the changing area. Jeez, what was that all about? Apparently one of the elves wasn't as perfect as she... Had one of the elves had a limp? He couldn't remember. Well, that was sad. The sickness of a kid was... Uh, children were the future. He'd do anything to help that kid. If one of the boys has a bent foot, he'd move heaven and earth to get it fixed. He'd rob a bank. And if the boy was a girl, even worse. Who'd ask a, a clubfoot or bent foot or whatever to dance? There your daughter sat with her crutch, all dressed up, not dancing. Hundreds of dry leaf fragments were skittering across the flapjackers parking lot. A bird on a parking bumper bolted, alarmed at the advance of the leaves. Stupid leaves. They'd never catch that bird. Unless he killed it with a stone, left it lying there, they'd be so grateful that they'd declare him king of the leaves. <laughs> he gave a pile of leaves a vicious kick. Shit. He felt like crying. Why, what was it? What was making him so sad? Off he drove through the town where he'd lived his whole life. The river was high. The grade school had a new bike rack. A ton of dogs leaped to the fence as usual as he passed the Flannery Kennel. Next to the kennel was Mike's Gyros. Once, during that terrible seventh grade year, Mom had taken him to Mike's for a Coke. What seems to be the problem, Mal? Mom had said. Everyone's calling me bossy and fat, he'd said. Plus, they say I'm sneaky. Well, Al, she'd said, you are bossy. You are fat. And I'm guessing you can be pretty sneaky. But you know what else you are? You have what is called moral courage. When you know something is right, you do it. No matter what the cost. Mom could sometimes be full of it. Once she said she could tell by the way he ran upstairs that he'd make a great mountain climber. Once when he managed to be B-minus in math, she said he should be an astronomer. Good old mom. She'd always made him feel special. Suddenly his face was hot. He felt mom looking at him from heaven, sternly but wirily, in that way she had, as if saying, hello, are we maybe forgetting something? Well, it had been an accident. He, he had just accidentally misplaced some things inadvertently with his foot via spontaneously kicking them erroneously. Mom's eyes narrowed in heaven. They were being mean to me, he said. Mom in heaven tapped her foot. What was he supposed to do? Go racing back? Lead them to the keys? They'd know he'd done it. Plus, Donfrew is probably long gone. Probably Donfrey's wife had a set of spare keys, although Donfrey's wife hadn't been there. Well, someone could drive Donfrey home, after he'd fruitlessly looked for his keys a while, causing him to be so late they'd have to reschedule the kids. Shit. Oh, they'd live. No one was dying from this, so a kid had to wait a few months more for her. Rooston pulled into a white stone driveway. He had to think. A Yorkie rushed up to the fence, barking ceremonially. Then a chicken came up. Huh. A chicken and a Yorkie living in the same yard. They stood side by side, looking at Roosten. Eureka. He saw how he could do it. He'd sneak back, pretend he'd never left. Everyone would be searching for the wallet and keys. He'd look alongside them a while. When they were about to give up, he'd say, "'I assume you've already looked under those risers?' "'Uh, well, no,' Donfrey would say. "'Might be worth a try,' Roostin would suggest. "'They'd get some guys and move the risers, "'and there would be the wallet, and there would be the keys.' "'Wow!' Donfrey would say. "'You are amazing!' "'Just a hunch,' Roostin would say. "'I simply mentally eliminated all other possible options.' "'I'm afraid I've underestimated you,' Donfrey would say. "'We have to have you over to the house soon.' To the mansion, Rooston would say. And Al, Donfrey would say, sorry about that time we walked out of your shop. That was rude. And Al, sorry I called you Ed earlier. Oh, did you? Rooston would say, I didn't even really notice. Dinner at the mansion would go well. Soon, he'd basically be a part of the family. He'd just drop by whenever. That would be nice. Nice to hang out in a mansion. "'Sometimes the boys might come along. "'Although the boys had better not break anything. "'They'd have to wrestle outside. "'One thing he did not need was his friend's mansion trashed. "'He saw Donfrey's gorgeous wife, "'distressed by all the things the boys had broken, "'collapse into a chair and start weeping. "'Thanks, boys. Great. Thanks a lot for that. "'Go outside. Go outside and sit quietly.' Now the moon is full in the big window, and he and Donfrey are wearing tuxes, and Donfrey's wife is wearing something low-cut and golden. This dinner is great, he says. All your dinners have been so great. It's the least we could do, says Donfrey. You helped us out so much that time I stupidly lost my keys. (laughs) Ha ha, yes, well, about that, Roosten says. Then he tells them all about it. How he did an unfortunate thing. Saw the light, raced back to help. What a riot, says Donfrey. That took guts, says Donfrey's wife. Coming back like that? I'd say it took moral courage, says Donfrey. Your honesty actually makes us admire you all the more, says Donfrey's wife. Mag was there, too. What was she doing there? Well, it was fine. She could stay. Mag was a good egg. Decent conversationalist. The Donfries would appreciate her good qualities, just like they appreciated his good qualities. And wouldn't mom love seeing that? Her kids finally getting their due from some sophisticated people and a beautiful mansion? An odd, inadvertent sound of contentment jerked Rooston out of his reverie. Huh. What the hell? Where was he? The Yorkie was sniffing the chicken the chicken didn't seem to mind. Or notice, the chicken had a laser-like focus on him, Al Roosten. Yeah, right. Like any of that was happening. Like he was racing back. They'd see through him. They'd fry his ass. People were always seeing through him and frying his ass. When he'd stolen Kirk Desner's flip downs, the kids on the team had seen through him and fried his ass. The time he'd cheated on Sill, Sill had seen through him, broken off their engagement, and cheated on him with Charles. Which had fried his ass possibly worse than any other single ass frying he'd ever had. In a life that, it seemed recently, was simply a series of escalating ass fries. He turned his mind towards mom, as always, for a word of encouragement. "'What, that Donfrey doofus never made a mistake in his life?' Mom said. "'Was never inadvertently involved in something unfortunate that sadly occurred, and now wants to label you a dick or a scum or a bad, immature person because of one small mistake? Does that seem fair? Don't you think he's probably needed forgiveness sometime in his life?' "'Probably,' Rustin said. "'Oh, definitely,' Mom said. "'I've known you all your life, Al.' And there's not a mean bone in your body. You are Al Rustin. Don't forget that. Sometimes you think something's wrong with you, but every time, turns out, there isn't. Why beat yourself up about this and in doing so, miss the beauty of the actual moment? The lilt of Mom's voice in his head cheered him. He pulled out of the driveway. Mom was right. The world was beautiful. Here was the pioneer graveyard with its leaning yellowed stones. Here was the very vivid jiffy lube. A dense ball of birds went linear, then settled into the branches of a lightning-blasted tree. He knew it wasn't really Mom in his head. He was just imagining what Mom would have said. Who knew what Mom would have said? She could be a crazy old broad there at the end, but he sure did miss her. He thought again of the crippled girl. They'd missed the appointment and had to reschedule. The only available slot was months away. In the dark of night, she'd reached down for her bent foot and let out a groan. She'd been so close, so close to getting... That That was crap. That was negative. You had to let the healing begin. Everyone knew that. You had to love yourself. What was positive? The shop. Thinking up ways to improve it, making it halfway decent, bringing it back to life. He'd put in a coffee bar, tear off that old stained rug. There! He was feeling better already. You had to have joy. Joy kept a guy going. Once he got the shop viable, he'd go beyond that. Make it great. Lines of people would be waiting when he arrived every morning. As he pushed his way through the crowd in his mind, everyone seemed to be asking with smiles and pats on his back, would he consider running for mayor? What'd he do for the town? What'd he done for bygone days? Ha <laughs> ha, what a fun deal that would be running for mayor. What colors would his banners be? What was his slogan? Uh, Al Roosten, friend to all. That was good. Al Roosten, the best among us. Little vain. Al Roosten, like you, only better. ha ha ha. Here was the shop. Nobody was waiting to get in. A muddy tarp had blown over from the junkyard and plastered itself across the window. Across from the junkyard was the viaduct where the hobos hung out. Those hobos were ruining his... He believed they preferred to be called homeless. Hadn't he read that? Hobo being derogatory? Jesus, that took nerve. Guy never works a day in his life, just goes around stealing pies off windowsills, then starts yelping about his rights. He'd like to walk up to a homeless and call him a hobo. He'd do it, too. He would. He'd grab that damn hobo by the collar and go, Hey, hobo, you're ruining my business. I've missed my rent two months in a row. Go back to the foreign country you probably... He just really hated those beggars walking past his shop with their crude signs. Couldn't they at least spell right? Yesterday, one had walked by with a sign that said, Please help, homeless. He felt like shouting, Hey, sorry you lost your hum. They'd spent enough time under that viaduct. Couldn't they at least proofread each other's... As he parked the car, his mind went strangely blank. Where was he? The shop. Ugh. Where were his keys? on the same old ugly lanyard. Impossible to get out of your pocket. Jesus, he couldn't stand the thought of going in. He'd sit there alone all afternoon. Why did he have to do it? For what? For who? Mag. Mag and the boys were counting on him. He sat a minute, breathing deeply. An old man in filthy clothes staggered up the street, dragging a cardboard sign on which no doubt he slept. His teeth were ghoulish, his eyes wet and red. Roostin imagined himself leaping from the car, knocking the man to the ground, kicking him and kicking him, teaching him in this way, a valuable lesson on how to behave. The man gave Roostin a weak smile, and Roostin gave the man a weak smile back. As we all know, learning doesn't stop after we leave school. It continues on that's the reason i'm a fan of the great courses super engaging video and audio lectures taught by top professors like timothy spurgeon who is an award-winning professor who taught the course the art of reading i watched it and it's super fun and engaging and really thoughtful he goes into uh, how dialogue is crafted the importance of narratives and characters and descriptions He helps bring literature alive. And if you don't have the time to watch it, you can listen to it. And you can get it on your phone or your computer. You can stream it. It's so easy. They send the DVDs and CDs to you. However you want to consume the product, they send it to you. It's amazing. And I really enjoyed this course from The Great Courses. And I want you to check it out too. But they're celebrating their 25th anniversary. They have over 500 courses on amazing topics. Anything you're interested in. History, science, literature, music, art, photography, they have it all. DVDs, CDs, streaming, digital downloads, whatever you need. There's a Great Courses app. So for a very limited time, The Great Courses has a special offer for my listeners. Order from eight of their best-selling courses, including The Art of Reading, all up to 80% off the original price. But this offer is only available for a limited time. So go to thegreatcourses.com. Slash Nate. That's vgreatcourses.com/slash Nate. Al Roosten by George Saunders, which is part of his 10th of December" short story collection. If you like short stories, I never really got into short stories until like a year or two ago. And when I asked people for recommendations, the first person they said was George Saunders. Besides, like Andre Abuse, or and. Uh, Raymond Carver. They were like, George Saunders, he's the best. And they were right. Thank you, friends who recommended books to me. Uh, this is another episode of Reading Aloud. Uh, we're over. Big thanks to Sovereign Sire for coming in and chatting with me about her experiences and about uh, literature and erotica and all kinds of fun, not safe for work stuff. Thank you, Sovereign. That was a great, great chat. And th- thank you, George Saunders, for writing a good short story that's called Al Rooston. Uh, get the book for the book club it's called The Invaders The Invaders Uh, and get your thoughts in before the 18th of August that's when we record the next book club podcast with an amazing panel that I'm really excited about So read The Invaders, share your thoughts with us at readingaloudpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter, readingaloudpod on Twitter for all kinds of updates about the show, about our live shows and about general exciting topics about books. So my name is Nate Cordry. I'm the host of the show. Thanks so much for joining us for another episode of Reading Aloud and we'll see you in two weeks for a real fun book club. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.
2: Hit me like a hurricane you sent her you monster the world's greatest screenwriters so it appears it is to be a chess match after all and hollywood's brightest actors how do you just stop believing in it all will come together eventually you will slip in a cinematic explosion i hope you trip and break your bloody stiff neck the likes of which podcasting has never seen <sighs> end of the goddamn world huh The Blacklist Table Reads takes the best screenplays from the famous Blacklist website and brings them to life with cream-of-the-crop talent and beautiful sound design. It's like a movie for your ears. You have no idea how committed we are. The story continues every week with a new movie every month. The Blacklist Table Reads, hosted by me, Franklin Leonard, and not in the movie trailer voice. Check it out on iTunes at wolfpop.com or on your favorite podcasting app. We'll see you there.
0: Pop, 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 pop. pop, pop,
2: pop, pop, pop. Wolfpop is part of Midroll Media. Executive produced by Adam Sachs, Matt Goerly, and Paul Shear.